She Opened the Door, a podcast where I speak with women who have opened doors for the rest of us. I'm your host, Sylvia Young. This first episode of She Opened a Door is sponsored by podcast supporter Karen Talamelli-Kuzik. Today's guest is Zoe Nicholson. She has spent a lifetime fighting for women to be protected in the Constitution. She made history when she fasted for women's rights. She's an author, playwright, has been in feature films, and it's 75 years old, not slowing down anytime soon. Before I met Zoe, I had no idea women weren't in the Constitution. And what's at stake? It's called the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA. Now with clocks rolling back, it's more important than ever to be having these conversations. Let's get started. Hi, Zoe. Thank you for joining me. There's so much to talk about, so many stories I want to hear. But first, how are you? How's your day going? I couldn't be better. Uh, I'm absolutely astonished that I am this well. My birthday is August 28th. I'm going to be 75. I'm so pleased. And uh, I'm so happy about it. I tell people I'm 75 already. And I'm I'm like, what, eight weeks away or something. Um, But I'm so happy to be here with you on this new adventure. Isn't it fun to be doing something new together? Oh, my gosh. Thank you. As I told you um, before we got on the call today, that you were my dream first guest because you have just had a lifetime of the most profound experiences and you keep putting yourself out there time and time again when I think you can't do anything else. I see it on your Facebook feed. You're doing something else. It's remarkable. And I don't want to say at your age, but really at your age where people think you're going to slow down, you really just keep going. So let's start with the ERA and Alice Paul. Help us understand what is at stake with not having the Equal Rights Amendment. For people listening that don't know or don't care, why should they? I'm going to just start at the beginning. And it won't won't take that long once you realize how far back I'm going. In 1787, a group of white men got together, even though Lin-Manuel portrayed it as a group of black and brown men. There There were two black men there. They were... Jefferson's and Washington's slaves, they were in the kitchen cooking. And the people who were writing the United States Constitution were all white men, and they were landowners. And it's so maddening because they had just left England and written, you know, they were stepping away from the king. And then they wrote a document that gave them individual permission to be kings. The document states plainly that if you have a fence and livestock and a house and a woman and children, that uh, you would get one vote per household. So if you even had a, you know, a son that was over 21, no, 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 no. Inside that fence, one person, one vote, and they owned everything inside that fence, including the women, the slaves, the livestock the crops, the harvest, they owned it all. And, you know, if you you look at who they stole it from in the first place, it's pretty astonishing. So this book, as Abigail Adams rightly said, uh, John, don't forget about the women. He didn't forget. He actually intentionally made sure they weren't included. What we're hoping to do 
since we've been working these hundred years, what Alice understood very early in her life, that the constitutional rights people speak of only apply to white male people. And that's why, you know, the amendment doesn't say man and it doesn't say woman. It says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So what would it mean? It would mean that women who wanted to control their reproductive justice would have the right to do so. What would it mean? It would mean that the whole LGBTQ world, which I am a member, uh, would have the same rights as those white men who have a fence in a house. Right now, what's at stake is that uh, our ability to control our bodies, our seeing a doctor, our deciding what to do with a pregnancy, all of that falls under an amendment that would say, hey, you know what? Every American belongs in protected by the Constitution. And right now, it's just absolutely maddening. And I think one reason why people don't know it's relevant and don't care is because it seems so incomprehensible. But the rulings that just happened in the Supreme Court this year alone would not have happened. I just read something today. I'm going to take a shot at the number, and I think it was maybe $17 million. Anyway, the Disney Corporation doesn't pay women equal wages. It was in the Wall Street Journal. I just read about it this morning. That's what Lily Ledbetter was talking about. She's a personal friend of mine. I I know she's going to be talking to you soon. She'll explain to you that She found out because there was a receipt in the trash at her retirement party that she'd been doing the same work as two men all those years, all the way to retirement, and she got paid less. Now, here's what that meant. Her pension is less. Her 401k is less. Her Social Security is less. Now, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at Latinas making 55 cents on the dollar. But the rent isn't 55% of what a white man pays. Her children's shoes are the same cost as children of white males. So what we're trying to do here is just even the playing field and say, everybody, uh, if we're practicing the function of equity, which clearly we are not, because that's what the Supreme Court ruled yesterday, that we have people from different starting points in, the, in trying to get to uh, uh, owning a home or putting their kids through school or choosing not to have a home or choosing not to have kids. So I, I listened to somebody as smart and honorable and intelligent, educated as Rachel Maddow. And when we lost, the, you know, the Dobbs decision came down and we lost Roe. Even she said that women lost constitutional rights with that ruling. No, we didn't. We never had, we're not in the constitution. We didn't lose constitutional rights. We had no constitutional rights. When Megan Rubino, I hope I have that name right, went down in a ticker tape parade on Wall Street 
celebrating that her team got equal pay to the men who also won the championship. Well, that was her team. But it didn't mean the women that work on Wall Street do. I worked on Wall Street. I worked at Citibank, 111 Wall. Women were paid less than men. Women are paid less than men. And yet our health insurance is more expensive. And to get our shirts dry clean, it's more expensive. You take your husband's shirt and you take your shirt to the cleaner. You get them both cleaned. And the lady's shirt costs more. And they, uh, we pay the pink tax across the board just because Gillette made the razors pink. They charge more for a women's razor. It's everywhere all the time. And I think a lot of people didn't understand the root of that misunderstanding, I believe, actually happened in 1972. The Senate passed on March 22nd, 1972. The Senate sent the ERA out to the states for ratification. They voted, and people heard, oh, it passed. And what they don't understand is the whole process of how something becomes an amendment to the Constitution. It has to go through the chambers in the Congress. It got through the House. It got to the Senate. It went out to the states. And then a supermajority of states had to ratify it. And that's what happened. Virginia voted, as I said, uh, January 15, 2020. But I think a lot of people are so overwhelmed with the problems of the day, with food costs going up, gas going up, their kids wanting to be educated. And now, you know, what's happened with the removal of affirmative action. And it, to just get through the day is hard enough. But I would like to remind your listeners, because I imagine they particularly care about women, that uh, single women head of household of any race is making less than a white man. But all the expenses are higher. So, you know, it's it, it's really very difficult. And there are very few people who understand who were in that balcony in Virginia. I was fortunate enough to be there. When that vote happened, it was so exciting that the 38th state had finally passed. But the same stupid arguments were made in 82, in 70, 82. The hearings that were just were this year, there were ERA hearings this year. You may have seen uh, my friend Elizabeth being thrown out by the Secret Service because she was interrupting Jeff Sessions for uh, questioning whether or not the ERA was relevant. Before we get too much further, can you share your inspiration? Like, how did you meet Sonia Johnson and the surprising bond of the seven women that fasted for the ERA? This is such an historic moment in the women's movement and the National Organization for Women. But first, please tell us, what was your inspiration? Well, people might be surprised to know it's because I had the most devout father. And the household I grew up in was very devout. All the books that I was given access to had to have an imprimatur from the Catholic Church. All the movies that I saw had to be approved by the Legion of Decency. 
And, and I remember looking at books in my dad's library to see if there was an imprimatur in there. And when I was very little, three, four, we would read uh, the lives of the saints and we would read the New Testament. And he played this game with me that we would read the New Testament as if it were just a book about a man. And then we'd talk about what he had done that day. And it was astonishing when I think back. It was so simple. He fed the poor. He clothed the naked. He buried the dead. He took care of everybody around him. And I, I mean, my whole imprint, talk about imprimatur, St. Vincent de Paul, St. Catherine Laboray, St. Rose of Lima, uh, Francis Cabrini, all these women. This is where I got imprinted about women. St. Francis, I'll tell you, who wrote the rules for the Franciscan order wasn't St. Francis, it was St. Clair. Francis was out there talking to birds. And St. Clair, uh, wrote the rules of the order. The women were the smart ones. And uh, in fact, Teresa of Avila was so smart that the Roman Catholic Church disbanded the possibility of women ever being a doctor of the church after her because they didn't like that somebody knew more than they did. My opening degrees, my first degree is in Roman Catholic theology. My second degree is from world is in world religion from USC, and I really believed that when Sonia, I will tell you, Sonia came through the bookstore. I owned a woman's bookstore, and Sonia came there to promote her book from a housewife to heretic. She had just been excommunicated from the Mormon Church because she believed that women and men were equal. And uh, that was not okay. So her husband took their three boys and they left her. And of course, if you understand the teachings of the Mormon church, they were separated now for all eternity. We'll not meet in the next life. And she was out there signing her book. And this was November of 1981. And I said, I don't care what it is. You just tell me. Whatever you're going to do for the ERA next summer, my answer will be yes. I don't care what it is. And she said, okay. And she called me in April of 82 on a yellow phone with a long cord in my bookstore and said, it'll be a fast. And I said, okay, send me the address. I will be there. That was the whole conversation. I had been studying Mahatma Gandhi, and of course, I knew all about his fasting. My first teacher, Jesus, had fasted and ongoing. I mean, Gandhi uh, certainly was a big imprint. And, of course, Caesar Chavez had fasted. And uh, the first confrontation I had with my mother was that I told her she shouldn't be buying grapes. And she just said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, the farm workers are trying to unionize. I was about 10. Wow. And, um, <laughs> Even at 10. 10. And she said, uh, where do you get this stuff? And I said, oh, the Girl Scout. I heard about that in the Girl Scout. So we shouldn't be buying lettuce or grapes. Anyway, so to me, fasting for equality was had a huge precedent. 
And, and it just seemed to make perfect sense. And then the strangest thing happened. I'm on the plane. We're going. I'm going with my friend, Dina. We are both the co-chairs of the local NOW chapter. Our NOW chapter did not want us to go. Nobody wanted us to go. Everybody told us we were crazy, that it was a bad idea, and uh, that didn't matter. So we're on the plane, and I'm thinking, I bet there are going to be 700 people at the airport waiting to join the fast. And then Dina said, really, Zoe, really? I said, okay, 70, there'll be 70. I know there'll be 70. And of course, there were seven. But what was interesting about these seven is each one of us, we found out that night independently, we had no idea going in that there were two Mormons, there were two Quakers, there was a Roman Catholic nun, and uh, Dina and myself, we were all there on a spiritual quest, all seven of us. And the women who were chained to the Senate doors upstairs at the same time, they were not fasting. They were they had literally blocked the doors to the Senate in great big gigantic chains. And the seven of us had this religious inspiration that we were answering to. And the women upstairs, that was not what bonded them. What bonded them was more the anti-war movement, Angela Davis, the Black Panthers. That movement was more the touchstone for those women upstairs. And, of course, the awakening of the women's movement with Betty Friedan and the founding of NOW and NWPC. And, I mean, women were making great strides. They were founding women's studies programs. Women were getting published. Uh, it looked like we were breaking through. And mostly through uh, a lot of work by lesbians. A lot of work by NOW was done by lesbians. Not that it had that much to do with orientation. It had to do with many of us were single and child-free. And we had more time. Or if you were in a NOW meeting, all the women who had children and a husband and all that to take care of, uh, some of us had more time. So it, it was an interesting, exciting time in the women's movement. Nothing but hope uh, on the horizon. For the seven of us, it was a spiritual calling. I can't thank you enough because I know from reading your story, I actually wasn't in this country when that happened and I wasn't taught about it in school. So I did come upon you and your story, you know, through my advocacy journey of my own, wanting to learn more. And what I continue to find inspiring about you is your passion and you just have commitment and dedication. When you went into the fasting, how do you even wrap your head around the fact that you don't know how your body was deteriorating? How did you keep that passion alive? Well, we had an opponent dancing around us all the time. There were probably a hundred women in red jackets uh, being, you know, the Eagles Forum being led by Phyllis. That was right there in the hall. We had knew that we were very close to getting the votes. There was a great strident leadership in the assembly and and in the Senate in Illinois. We knew that uh, there was a possibility, but we also knew that doing anything less wasn't going to satisfy. 
So, you know, a weekend Dick Gregory arrived and you have to really, it's hard to believe that I got to sit next to Dick Gregory for a week, which I did. I sat at the end. And so we tacked on another chair when he came to sit with us. He brought a woman doctor and said, she's here for the duration. I'm paying for it. He said, I'm paying for all your water. I want you drinking proper, pure water. I'm paying for that. You never have to pay for that. Because we arrived penniless. We did not have return tickets. And we just do it one day at a time, which anyone who understands AA or uh, any kind of commitment, you only do it one day at a time, one hour at a time, one moment at a time. But when you have all these silly women, silly, and I mean silly, who actually believed that eating a Snickers candy bar in front of us at noon, I, I was on the elevator and I heard them talking that they were they had made up this plan that they were going to all walk over to the newspaper stand, remember those, and buy Snickers candy bars and eat them in front of us at noon. And sure as shooting, there they were, all these lovely ladies and eating their Snickers. And did they really think for the possibility of men and women being equal in the United States, we would care and sell it away for a Snickers candy bar? I mean, it, 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 it just defies logic. And I think one one thing is, I want you to imagine that the seven of us believed it was going to work every moment, every moment. Zoe, after all this sacrifice, take us back to when you knew the vote wasn't going to go your way. How did history unfold and what can we learn from this? We were in a bus. They got us out of there. We knew the Florida vote had just gone down. We knew that the Illinois vote, it was predicted to go down like in a half hour. And so we got on this um, magical bus. We used to think of it as the Gloria Steinem had rented for us. And we were all together. And we went back to the hotel and we sat out on the grass. Because again, June 30th, it was summer in Illinois. And the press wanted to interview us, and we took a bit of time before the press was cut loose on us. We were unhappy, but I don't think there was any expectation it was going to be 41 years, and we still don't have it. I mean, we just figured that we'd collect and keep going. That's what I thought. And everybody chanted this very horrible chant that gives me the willies now. It's it's a we'll remember in November. We'll remember in November. And there were uh, I don't know ten thousand women at the White House fence on July oh July first. Ooh, I just got chills. That forty one years ago today. Oh my gosh! Ten thousand women at the White House fence saying we'll remember in November to vote against all those people that had voted against uh, those that were in favor of the ERA, and you know what, in November, now figure how far that was. That was July, August, September, October, five months. No, they didn't remember in November. They voted for whoever was going to economically support the growth of their families and their lives, which is how they always vote. That is how we vote. We vote on who's going to economically keep us afloat. We hardly, hardly any of us vote on principle. So, uh, no, they didn't remember in November. So now when I hear that, particularly if you remember the Women's March when uh, 
Mr. 45, I seldom, I don't use his name. When Mr. 45 was elected, the first women's march was the day after his inauguration. And they were all casting about, proclaiming that they would, uh, you know, chastise this man, embarrass this man, get him out of office. And I mean, in retrospect, we see how utterly hopeless that was. But at the time, everyone believed. And that is that is what we do. Belief catapults us to behave better, catapults us to hope more. And, uh, and then, you know, it doesn't happen. And you tell your kids, give tomorrow another chance. Maybe tomorrow will be better. When you get out of bed tomorrow, maybe you'll feel better. And uh, we do that to ourselves all the time. That's how we do anything. Gosh, it's just, I mean, at 75, you must have seen so many cycles of this kind of, you know, um, I mean, was it any, couldn't have been any bigger when, when you were doing the fasting, you had headlines everywhere. Like you said, there was the second wave of feminism, um, Gloria Steinem and all these other names. It, It was news. And then we see it die down and people think, you know, everything's okay. That's like it didn't exist or we got the rights or it's just died down. And then we see someone, you know, when our rights are threatened again, you know, people get back interested. However, we have to keep that interest because, like you said, we are still fighting for the ERA. I don't think the people who are on fire ever stop. There's a great book called Surviving the Doldrums. I mean, if you ask, the ERA first was introduced into Congress by Susan B. Anthony's nephew, by the way. Um, He was a congressman from the great state of Kansas, and he introduced the ERA in 1923. We believe that it's so right, we can't stop. We have to keep going. Somebody asked recently in regards to LGBTQ rights, has it ever been this bad? Well, I was the clinic director of the Free Clinic of Orange County in 1982 when the first man was diagnosed with AIDS. Yeah, it's been worse. We stopped in these periods. The on-fire people didn't stop in these doldrums. It's a appearance. The ERA was introduced into Congress every single session, all ADA, every single one since 1923. There are people marching for peace. There always will be. The Peace Network hard at work right now. The ratio of people who don't forgive, don't forget, don't give up, who want to get what they know is right, the ratio of people is infinitesimal. You've maintained your passion for a lifetime. You've done so much for so many causes, and you haven't slowed down. As of today, what do you want to be remembered for? If I'm remembered for anything in my lifetime, I hope it is that I am a signator on a law in the city of Long Beach called Claudia's Law, which protects hotel housekeepers regarding sexual assault. And it took two years of standing with signs on Ocean Boulevard, two years as the council voted against it twice, not once, but twice, that we had to go door by door get signatures on a petition, to get it put on a ballot, to have the people vote on it. They voted 76% yes. 
Now, I just did that four years ago. It's all the time, always going, and I'm putting on a women's festival with boosts of information about women, by foreign about women, and after struggling for eight years to get it done on July 18th, the city council here in Long Beach will create a woman's commission. That's eight years, which sounds like a drop in the bucket when we're talking about 100 years and 40 years, but eight years is still a very long time, a lot of dedication, a lot of meetings, I'm sure, a lot of organizing. The woman who first brought it to the floor, she's in her 90s. She's still, wow. she's still with us. She will be there. She brought it to the floor in Long Beach in 1948, or 1978, I'm sorry, in 1978, and said, uh, brought it to the floor to start a women's commission. And a man said, if you start a women's commission, I'm going to insist we have a men's commission. And nobody voted for it. She didn't even get a second on her proposal. And now we are, all these years later, going to have a women's commission in the city of Long Beach this summer to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Equal Rights Amendment. So you do stuff because there's an opportunity. When I speak to colleges, oftentimes seniors in women's studies, They'll say, Zoe, the world is so screwed up. There are a hundred different ways we could go each of our lives. Do we go to the foreign problems, the local problems, the civic problems? What do we do? And I said, the answer is really easy. You do what's in front of you. You open up your heart and whatever just lands in front of you, you make sure you give your very, very best. Sonia walked into my life. You know, the the housekeepers walked into my life. The Equal Rights Amendment walked into my life. I didn't leave the house to go find it. And when it just lands at your feet and you look at it and you say, ah, now I need to deal with senior housing. It took me 26 months to get into senior housing. Ah, I live on a block where there are people sleeping around the whole block at night on, on the concrete. Oh, okay. Now I see the problem I have to deal with is the unhoused. It'll come right to you. And then you give everything you possibly can. And it just sort of goes on. Need never takes a break. Why should we? Isn't that the truth? I mean, it, and it, it never it never does take a break. And you're saying that it, it becomes a lifestyle for the for the person as well, the, the activist or the advocate or the just the human, right? To see humanity and to be part of the change for better. So in all these years, I know one of the things you've been talking about, and I would love to have your reflection on all these years, how does society change? Oh, gosh. Sometimes it's not, it's, it's really hard when you look because would you be willing to stand in front of the White House? six days a week from 10 to 5 for 17 months. And in the course of those 17 months, go to jail a dozen times. While you're in jail, fast. Would you be willing to do all that so you could vote? It's, it's a hard question. And if we look at how things change, the murder of uh, the Kent State people that finally 
triggered a change, pardon the expression, created a change in our viewpoint in Vietnam. How many people gave their life for that? How many, you know, when one out of four housekeepers, and I'm talking about women working in the hotel industry, if one out of four is suffering sexual assault, is that enough to catapult us to do something about it? I guess the question is how much do we take of the downside to have enough people rise up to say no more? And I ask that all the time. It's getting re it's really very difficult right now. I truly believe that we didn't answer the call with Anita Hill. Yeah. And I, you know, I believe we didn't answer the call when Christine Blasey Ford was trying to tell us. Yes, two huge missed opportunities. Huge. Well, if you if you start from the place of believing women, no matter what, let that be proven not true. In other words, it's the reverse of how we work. She would not be home having dinner with Camille tonight if we believed women. And E. Carroll, we if we had believed her coming out of Bergdorf's, we, you know, we believed all these women. I was blessed with being a, a consultant with the Cosby survivors. And they were struggling with whether or not the issue of could they universally be public. Some wanted to and some didn't. And so I had the privilege of speaking with them about coming out be public. We don't believe women. That is the problem. How fast did they just blow off the idea that 45 saying he grabs women by their genitals and they love it? We didn't react. The question was, what is it going to take to create change? And I think that the, the cost keeps escalating because now we have a Supreme Court with three liberal women and six racists. So, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to take to change that. But I do know that the president is capable of doing a few things that I wish he'd do. For example, the question is, what do we do about the ERA? He picks up the phone and he calls the archivist. By the way, her name is Colleen Shogun. And says, publish. 38 states ratified. They filled all the requirements as indicated by the Constitution. I am writing an executive order right now that you publish the Equal Rights Amendment. I want everybody to understand that on January 15, 2020, when the 38 state voted, 45 sent a message to his head of DOJ, Bill Barr, and said, Bill, tell them to not publish it when it arrives. So they published, if you remember Nevada 2017, they published Illinois 2018. They did not publish the 38th state 2020, but that's because of a memo by Bill Barr. So the reason we don't have equal rights under the law right now is because we are living under the pen of Bill Barr. And I can't resist saying that 
all it would take is Biden to decide that equality of rights under the law should not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. If he just decided that was right, he could take care of it in two hours, no matter what time zone you're in. So there is that. But instead, organizers are having to spend countless hours going, trying to get the public to get their elected officials to be engaged. So you're saying, honestly, that our president at this time could do an action that would help us tremendously, and it's not being done. I had this fantasy. I I have to own this. Four years ago, I really believed that when a Democratic president was seated, they would take everything that Barr wrote and everything that 45 wrote and uh, get rid of it. Because that's what 45 did when he took office. He changed everything to match his funders. So what I'm saying is that I think people on the left are uh, assuagers. They want to get along to get along. They want to not rock the boat. And the answer, the short answer, let me tell you, to how do we create changes? We rock the boat. And please explain to us, in regards to the ERA, for those listening who are engaged now, we know what the ERA is. We know what you have done for us on our behalf. We know how many years this has taken. We know what's at stake. How can we rock the boat? What do you suggest we do? Well, you can write to the president and tell him to publish, number one. Because I think if you write Colleen Shogun directly as the archivist, I do not believe she's at liberty to make that decision. Uh, I believe the president has to lift the bar memo. And there's no reason for the bar memo to be holding us back. The second thing you can do, and I, you know, I have very little hope that this is going to happen, but let's remember in November, Hardy Hart, that you might actually ask people who are running for office, where do you stand on the ERA? Now, there is an Equal Rights Amendment, um, actually, for the very first time, caucus in the House. The Senate, we had a, a, a simple majority, not a supermajority in the House. We did not have a supermajority, and they actually, Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush started an ERA caucus. So if your representative is in the House, you might ask them to join the ERA caucus, at the very least to sign on to HJ Res 25 and to SJ Res 5. So I will, you know, once again, because it, it's just too hard to hold in your head. Every single year for every single Congress for 100 years has been introduced to the ERA. Every single Congress since 1923 has on their docket the Equal Rights Amendment. And uh, we fulfilled all the regulations that we had 38 states ratified by a majority in their state houses. That's done. Two years have passed, so it should be in effect right now. Oh, wow. If you had to predict, how long do you think this is going to take? Is that just too wild to even guess with how long it's taken? 
No, I think the the question is what circumstances is it going to take? Ooh, yes. And I think we need to have a brave, motivated, conscientious person head of the executive branch and several people leave the judicial branch, probably not by retirement. You ask how long it's going to take it. I mean, I, I don't really, it sounds really crass, but several of the conservative, we need the conservative judges to no longer be seated in the Supreme Court. And we need to have the House and the Senate. So basically what we're talking about is for um, all three branches of government to be blue. And how long is that going to take? I really, I don't know. You're right. We don't have a timeline for those circumstances. So let me ask this a different way. After all this time, what would it take for you personally to give up? I won't because it's what makes me me. I'm really just fighting to be me. I'm finding to be a senior housed lesbian, a progressive liberal, a voting Democrat. In order for me to be me, everywhere I go, and believe me, I have left rubble in my way. I mean, God help the fool that tells me to stop. I hope our listeners are inspired that there are people like you that refuse to give up. I know I am so grateful. So we've talked a lot about your work in women's rights, but I know your advocacy doesn't stop there. We don't have long, but are there any other stories you'd like to share? The scariest thing I ever did happened when I was working on the campaign to end Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And you may or may not know that Dan Choi, who was a lieutenant in the United States Army, graduate of West Point, he was an interpreter and he... I want to say accidentally, but I'm giving you a wink, wink on that, uh, came out on the Rachel Maddow show as being gay. And at the time, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was in engaged, and he was dishonorably discharged, and he was a close personal friend of mine. So a group I belonged to decided that we were going to harass the president until he re- got rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. The president was coming to town. The group I was working with, uh, all of whom are uh, 100%ers, like they don't have faucets where they can turn their intention on and off. Three of us actually went to a fundraiser for Barbara Boxer here in Los Angeles. And it was 3,000 Black people who were there to celebrate that finally they had gotten a Black president. And he was my president, too. I voted for him happily. Don't misunderstand. All I wanted was to get rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So uh, the three of us went into, but we were given these very expensive tickets. They were $2,400 each. There was an organization that uh, bought us tickets so we could get in. I had on a soup coat. I had on a, a pair of pants. And a blazer, and under the blazer, I had a T-shirt that said, uh, repeal, don't ask, don't tell. So we go in, and obviously, we are the teeny tiny minority of white people in the room. And we we started yelling out in order, number one went first, and they're saying, repeal, don't ask, don't tell, it's the right thing to do. And they start screaming it louder and louder. And then this guy standing, I mean, three feet from the president. 
start screaming, repeal, don't ask, don't tell. It's the right thing to do. And literally, I dropped my jacket and I started screaming at the top of my lungs. I'm right in the line of view of the president. Oh, my gosh. 3,000 people who are celebrating that they have finally gotten a spectacular president. Just spectacular president. That was not easy. And uh, I am now screaming, repeal, don't ask, don't tell, at the top of my lungs. And the president looks at me. It's on TV. You can see it on my YouTube channel. (laughs) Where he looks right at me and he says, would you like to come up here and speak? And you can guess by now, I said, yes. Yes, I would. And the people around me all sort of separate, like I'm going to get up there. And, of course, I know darn well I'm not going to get 18 inches up there and the secret service come and take my arms. And I said to them quietly, I will not, you know, I will not fall on purpose. I'm walking out, but I won't stop shouting. So they're walking me out the door as I shout, repeal, don't ask, don't tell. And I'm really pleased to say that uh, three weeks later, President Obama repealed, don't ask, don't tell. What an incredible experience. So wait, you drop your jacket. Obama's asking you if you want to come up on stage. You've got the Secret Service trying to escort you out the building. What did that feel like? It was something. It was definitely, as I tell you, I I can feel it right now, like the adrenaline up to my ears. And I will tell you, the next day he was doing a fundraiser at Alonzo Morning's house in Florida. And the group I was working with had gotten in by land, sea, and air. They had a biplane going over the party with a trailer that said, don't, repeal, don't ask, don't tell. They got them lined up with cars. And then, believe it or not, Alonzo lives on an island. And they had a boat come up to the dock that said, repeal, don't ask, don't tell. We were everywhere he was for, oh, I'm going to guess a month. And, and the poor man just didn't know when we were going to stop. And he got interviewed by a woman uh, who wrote a book, actually, about it and about other things regarding President Obama and how he had just gotten to his wit's end. And his wife had already come out against Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Mm-hmm. So he was he was surrounded on all fronts, home and work. And, you know, it was a great victory, but it, it definitely was the scariest, most unprotected moment I've ever had because I didn't know if I was going to jail. Oh, I can't even imagine that. You know, you have so many stories. Could you share with our listeners how they can even get access to these stories? I know you've written books, you've written a play, you've been on different shows, movies. Can you share a little bit about that? Well, for one thing, I hope you look up the website called Still Working 9 to 5. It's a fantastic documentary with Hart and Fonda and uh, Tomlin about the making of 9 to 5, which we all watched 40 years ago. And it's about how nothing's changed, how women are making actually less. And Lily Ledbetter and I are in this documentary, still working 9 to 5, and talking about how it hasn't gotten any better. And uh, we are working uh, morning, noon, and night to get a streamer to pick it up. It is already it is in the festival circuit right now. 
We previewed it at South by Southwest, and it's a full-length documentary. It's gotten rave reviews, all kinds of awards. And I hope when it is streaming, uh, everybody watches Still Working 9 to 5. That's really exciting. Now, I have I've written for, well, three autobiographies. I'm working on another one right now. But the full biography is called The Engaged Heart, which goes from age four to to 2012. And the, uh, the one I'm working on right now is my scrapbook. Uh, it's a scrapbook of my life studying Alice and how much Alice Paul has influenced who I am, what I think about, what I do. But I think still working nine to five really has got some great footage. And and of course, Lily Ledbetter is in it. So uh, she's so spectacular. You know, she's still working very hard on making trying to enforce the Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. The first bill that Obama signed the day he was inaugurated was the Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, but it didn't have teeth because it didn't have the Fair Paycheck Act. It said that employers had to pay men and women equally, but it didn't say that employers had to tell what they were paying them. Mm-hmm. So they had a, an ability to keep it private, to not be transparent. That bill never got passed. So that's why Lily and I both are committed to the Equal Rights Amendment, because it, it is what will right that wrong, fair pay for fair work. It's just amazing that people are are content. Listeners, why are you content that right. um, your daughters and your sons are going to get paid differently? If your daughters and sons go to medical school, the chances of your sons moving up in uh, teaching medicine or running a hospital administrator or being head of the department are, you know, 10 times greater for your sons than for your daughters. Why is that okay? And if you are working right now at Disneyland or at Goodyear or anywhere, demand that your employer make public what everyone is paid. Because you should not be retiring with less social security than the man at the next desk who's doing the same work as you. I don't know why everybody's okay with it. I'm not okay with it. Well, I hope that you have inspired the listeners to understand all of these issues and to wrestle with their own conscience on really why are we okay with it? We shouldn't be on all of these issues. But just to give you a little more of a shout out, I do want to mention your books and your play because I'm sure my listeners are thinking, who is this amazing woman? How can I read more? I want to know more of these stories. So please tell us more about your books and the play. Well, I want you to go to MissAlicePaul.com. I have a virtual program that I put on, which is the History of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's called ERA, The Big Picture. And I do that via Zoom. And you can project it on the wall and show it in your classrooms. And you can't record it, but I'm happy to be there. And I will talk live and do a Q&A as long as people want. Uh, that's ERA, the big picture. My in-person performance is called Tea with Alice and Me. And if you just think of a TED Talk on steroids, I stand in front of a huge screen with projections of photographs of Alice's life. And I talk about her, the Equal Rights Amendment, and myself, and how it all intersects. And that's called Tea with Alice and Me. 
both those things you can find at Alice Paul, Miss Alice Paul.com. You know, I, I want to tell you that her interviewer said, what do you want me to call you? Do I call you Dr. Paul? Do I call you Alice? And she said, you call me Miss Paul. So she liked being called Miss. And I always, I got a kick out of that. So the website is MissAlicePaul.com. My book, The Hungry Heart. You can find that on MissAlicePaul.com. I, I want to make send you to the easiest place to remember the Hungry Heart, believe it or not, is actually without a single change. My daily diary of those days, 45 days in Illinois. I wrote in that book while I was sitting in the chair. I wrote on that in that book at night when I went back to the hotel. That is exactly my daily diary. And you can see me getting a little bit stranger as the days go by uh, from not eating and me starting to go blind at day 11. And it's it's interesting, as I said, 42 years ago, who can believe that? Starting to go blind at day 11. I mean, now you can say it so, you know, flippant. <laughs> That's at day 11. And you went how many days? 37. I can't imagine the internal dialogue. And I thank you so much because in reading that book, I had chills because you are talking about how you're writing it. I felt just so close to the experience. And I can't thank you enough for even having the foresight to put all that down so that all these years later, we can experience that with you. What are the next projects you have going? Imagine 18 days. Really, I'm excited. In 18 days, my city, where I go to council on Tuesdays, my city, where I live and breathe, is going to have finally a women's commission. After, in 1928, Alice Paul, you know, was there, had sent, the word had gone out to start commissions across the Americas. In 18 days, my city will vote on a women's commission. And in 18 Actually, it'll be 21 days that the ERA will be 100 years old. And by the way, there's going to be a big event at Seneca, exactly where Alice announced it 100 years ago. If you're interested, there will be a big event in Seneca Falls on July 21st, you know, this year. So there are celebrations. And tomorrow, uh, people are participating in a banner drop all across the country. Of, of dropping a banner for the Equal Rights Amendment. By the way, I am on Facebook. I am on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel, but I have many, many websites. And I hope you find MissAlicePaul.com and be with me for the next 20 years. I'm, I'm going for 20 more, maybe. I don't know, 15 more. I'm not sure. Is there anything you still want to accomplish? Of course, the ERA, but you've written books, you're speaking, you're talking to students, you're passing laws, you're creating commissions. What else? What I, else is on that bucket I, list, Zoe? I'm, I have this crazy idea that I want to start an organization called Landlords Who Love. I'm thinking about trying to create an organization where landlords actually get self-esteem and, and understand what it means to house the poor. Because that was what God called them to do was to house the poor. I think that, you know, if anything I find sad is that landlords don't understand what a blessing it would be if to house the poor. 
I live with the poor. I live in a building with the poor. It's the most grateful, wonderful, magical place I've ever lived. And uh, I hope the rich one day will wake up and understand that the reason they are poor is because they have the possibility of generosity. And uh, so I don't know if that's next, but I think about it a lot. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love the spirit that that has. And it just says so much about you. It speaks volumes as does your entire life's work. So with that, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I learned more about you. And every time I learn more about you, I want to learn even more about you. You just are such an inspiration. And I I can't even say, I can't imagine my life without knowing you. There was a time I didn't know what the ERA was and is. And I don't want to um, ever shame people about that because we all come to knowledge differently. But once you do know, what do you do with that knowledge, right? What do you do once you know? Like you were saying, you know, why don't people care enough? Well, maybe we can get them to care more now that you've explained so explicitly, you know, what's at stake and what you and others have done to open a door for the rest of us is just phenomenal. Um, Absolute gratitude, Zoe. And congratulations on a centennial celebration. I just watch your work and it's fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, everybody. Have a great, great July. I hope you enjoyed meeting my friend Zoe Nicholson. This interview took place on Saturday, July 1st, 2023. Maybe her stories moved you to want to know more about policy, like equal pay, housing, or reproductive rights. Maybe you're moved to help stop the clocks from rolling back. You might reach out to your elected official to get engaged with the ERA caucus, or request Biden to remove the bar memo and publish, or support the documentary Still Working 9 to 5. Or maybe you just want to join me on this podcast to be inspired by women making the world more equitable for the rest of us. Wherever you are on your journey, I'm glad you're here. You can subscribe to She Opened a Door at Substack. See you on my next episode. I can't wait to introduce you to this guest because she's definitely opened a door. So until next time... Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Sylvia Young. This first episode is sponsored by podcast supporter, Karen Talamelli-Kuzik.